0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. As Rick mentioned, we have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And this morning, as is our custom, we're simply going to take the next passage of Scripture that we come to, which is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And let's pray before we go any further. Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory for the God that you are. And for the faithfulness you show, Lord. Even in those difficult times, Lord. Even in the storms and trials of life, Lord. You are faithful. And yes, good and loving. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself faithful this morning. That as your word is proclaimed. That it would not return void, but would accomplish your purpose in every single one of us, God. That not one person in this room would leave here unchanged, but that you would cause these truths from your word to to find a place in our hearts, Lord, to resonate within us. Oh, God, make us into the kinds of people You want us to be, show us everything you want to show us, change us in every way you want to change us this morning. We just surrender ourselves to you. And it's in Jesus name we ask these things. Amen. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, of course, there's a lot in that verse we could discuss. But notice, in particular, those five words, I will build my church. Notice that Jesus didn't say, you will build my church, as if we could accomplish such a feat by our own power or cleverness. Nor did Jesus say, I will build your church. As if everything revolved around us. And our desires and our preferences. No, he said, I will build my church. You know, that might very well be the most important statement in the entire Bible. About how we think about church. And and we might say, do church. The church belongs to Jesus, and it came into being as a result of his initiative, was bought with his blood, was established by his authority, is advanced by his power, must function according to his will, and exist ultimately for his glory." All of that is bound up in those five words, I will build my church. And that's also exactly what we're going to see in our main passage this morning in Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now, in order to understand this passage, we have to remember what's just taken place in the previous chapter. In Acts 10, a huge barrier was crossed. Up until that time, there was a massive separation between Jews and people who aren't Jews, known as Gentiles. The Jews despised the Gentiles and refused to eat with them or even associate with them in any way. And that's the way it had been for centuries. Like Jews and Gentiles just didn't mix. But God sovereignly led the Apostle Peter to go to the house of a Gentile in order to share the gospel with him. Now, such a visit to the house of a Gentile would have been typically considered by a Jew a scandalous thing. But Peter went because God told him in a vision that it was okay. So, he went there and shared the gospel with Cornelius and the others who had gathered there. And the result was incredible. I mean, Cornelius and all of his his relatives and close friends embraced the message about Jesus that Peter preached, and they became Christians. So, that was Acts 10. Now, in the present passage, Luke, who's the author of Acts, he does something that's rather unusual. Uh, He essentially tells the story of Acts 10 a second time. And this is unusual because it's not the kind of thing Luke typically does, right? He's not like some people who kind of seem to ramble on and on and maybe take 10 minutes to say something that really could have been said in two minutes, I'm sure we all know people like that, but that's not Luke. He's very concise and to the point. So why then does he use all of this precious space here, 18 verses to be exact, retelling the story? that's just been told in the previous chapter? Well, the most obvious answer is that the events of Acts 10 are extremely significant. This crossing of the ethnic barrier between Jew and Gentile meant that Christianity wouldn't just be another sect of Judaism. It would be a worldwide religious movement in its own right. And that's what Jesus had said from the very beginning, of course. Back in Acts 1.8, He had told His disciples to spread the message about Him, how far? To the end of the earth, right? And now, finally, that was happening. For the first time, the gospel was being proclaimed among the Gentiles, Yet, as we're going to see here in Acts 11, many Jewish Christians found that to be a difficult pill to swallow. Look with me at Acts 11:1 through 3. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, when Peter went up to them, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So the people who are having difficulty accepting these new Gentile converts are identified here in verse two as the circumcision party. Now, circumcision was something God had commanded Abraham and his male descendants to do in order to mark themselves off as God's chosen people, the people uniquely favored by God. So, circumcision was a source of great National pride. And it seems as though this circumcision party within the Jerusalem church wanted these Gentiles to be circumcised before they would accept them as fellow believers. Essentially, they wanted these Gentiles to become Jews prior to embracing Jesus. It's also highly likely that they would expect them to keep the rest of the Old Testament law and Jewish customs as well. But in the subsequent verses, Peter appeals to them to reconsider their position. Look at verses 4 through 10. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And this is review from chapter 10. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Now, the point of this vision is that God was commanding Peter to eat foods that had been designated in the Old Testament law as unclean, meaning that they were off limits. The implication is that the Old Testament law is no longer binding for God's people today. So that's one thing we can glean from this vision. And yet this vision is even more significant than that. Because God wasn't just telling Peter that it was now okay to eat unclean foods. He was actually preparing Peter to accept people who were formerly regarded by the Jews of the day as unclean. Look at verses 11 through 17. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If, then, God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he tells him and the others who were gathered there about Jesus. Jesus. And God had prepared Cornelius to hear that message. Uh, In verse 14, the text records how God had said to Cornelius that Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. The natural question, of course, is saved from what? And the resounding answer throughout both the, the Old and New Testaments is saved from our sin. Because the alarming reality is that you and I and everyone else on the face of this earth has been we we are born into a state of sinful rebellion against God and therefore are destined to face God's judgment and even worse there's nothing that we can do to extricate ourselves from this situation or, or to merit God's favor because the problem isn't just that we do sinful things, but rather that we have a sinful heart. And try as we might, there is nothing that we can do to change our heart. Guys, we need a Savior. Now, thankfully, in His grace, God has provided exactly what we needed in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to this earth as a a human being, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, right? He endured God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to, right? The full force of God the Father's judgment against sin came down on Jesus instead of us. And then three days later, of course, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. That's the message that Peter shared with Cornelius and that people today so desperately need to hear. And as Peter was sharing this message, verse 15 records the most remarkable thing. Peter recounts, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. In other words, just like the Holy Spirit fell upon Peter and the other Jewish Christians in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost, he had now fallen on these Gentiles, Now, how did they know? Well, the evidence of that would have been the Gentile converts miraculously speaking in languages that they had never learned, just like Peter and the other Christians, the other Jewish Christians had done back in Acts 2. That phenomenon, often called speaking in tongues, was the external sign in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit had come upon a person. And so the the fact that the Holy Spirit had come upon these Gentiles without the Gentiles' First, being circumcised or becoming Jews was, in Peter's mind, a clear indication that such measures weren't necessary. Essentially, Peter was arguing that God giving the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles was conclusive evidence that they belonged in the church and should therefore be accepted as brothers and sisters in the Lord. As Peter states in verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? We then read this in verse 18, when they, that is the members of the Jerusalem church, heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that's how the Jewish Christians came to accept Gentile converts into the church. I'm sure it must have taken a lot for them to do that. It, it must have been a radical idea. Yet the evidence was undeniable. God had poured out the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles just as He had done to the Jews at the feast Pentecost. And by the way, I admire the way in which these Jewish Christians were humble enough to admit that they were wrong. Um, Their view of the scope of God's saving purposes wasn't even close to being adequate. And yet they had the the humility and, and the teachable spirit to admit that. Hopefully we can have that same teachable mentality because the reality guys is that none of us has things all figured out we're all learning we're all growing and so as we read the bible ourselves and as we discuss the bible with each other we should be on the lookout for aspects of our thinking that need correction and be willing to change anything that god wants us to change in response to the things we read in scripture Yet the theme that sticks out the most to me from this passage isn't Peter's argument or the response of those in the Jerusalem church. Rather, it's the sovereign hand of God that we see bringing all of these things about. It was God who sovereignly gave Cornelius a vision telling him to send messengers to Peter. It was God who sovereignly prepared Peter to receive those messengers and to accompany them back to Cornelius' house without hesitation. It was then God who sovereignly imparted the Holy Spirit to Cornelius and his household. And it was God who in the words of verse 18 we saw sovereignly granted repentance to them so that they were able to to turn from their sins and embrace Peter's message. And to sum all of that up, it was God who determined the scope of his saving blessings, that they wouldn't just be for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. So everywhere we look in this passage, we see God, 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 all over the place. And so the main idea I'm convinced we should glean from this passage is that God is building His church according to His own sovereign will. God is building His church according to His own sovereign will. Notice here how God doesn't ask permission from the Jewish Christians or from the circumcision party to do something. He just does what He wants to do. He doesn't conform to the expectations that his people have, but rather expects them to follow his lead and submit to his will. That's the central thing that ties this passage together. I mean, what God does in Acts 10 and 11 is totally contrary to what anybody expected, and it's on them to get with the program and follow his lead. Again, as Peter says in verse 17, who was I that I could stand in God's way. And the same goes for us today. Let's be clear that both the church and the church's mission belong to God. And when we engage in that mission of telling people about Jesus and, and leading them toward becoming disciples of Jesus, then we're simply Joining God in what He's already doing. It's kind of like when I uh, went on a mission trip several years ago to uh, the the country of Bosnia. Uh, I was a part of a team that went to probably for about maybe 10 or 11 days, and we visited these missionaries in Bosnia named Steve and Kim. And of course, when we went there, Steve and Kim were the ones who were running the show, right? They had already been there for six years. And so they, they knew the language. They are the ones who understood the culture and, and had already developed a strategy and were actively implementing that strategy to connect with that local community there and lead them toward Jesus. And so it would have been ridiculous and quite inappropriate for me to show up and think I knew better than Steve and Kim and try to run the show myself, right? No, we did on that trip whatever Steve and Kim told us to do. Humanly speaking, it was their operation, their show to run, and we were just joining them. And that's the way it is in an even more ultimate sense with God, both the church and the church's mission belong to Him. He's the one in the driver's seat, so to speak, and who therefore determines not just the destination, but also every stop and every turn along the way. Again, God is building His church according to His own sovereign will. And I've been saying God here, but to be more specific, it's Jesus Who's building the church according to his own sovereign will? As we've already seen in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. The church, quite simply, belongs to Jesus, having been bought with his blood and sustained by his power. In addition, Colossians 1 18 says of Jesus that he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head. And the church is his body. Another way to say it is that Jesus is Lord of the church. The church was established by his authority in the past, is governed by his commands in the present, and will one day give an account before his judgment seat in the future. Jesus is Lord of the church. And we're reminded of that right in verse 17 of our main passage where he's referred to, as he often is, as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the undercurrent that runs throughout this passage and that guides all of the events that take place. And as I think about the significance of this passage for us today, I can't help but think about all of the ways, uh, unfortunately, In which the lordship of Jesus over his church is often undermined in many churches today. The reality is that Jesus has made it very clear what he wants the church to be like, how he wants the church to operate, which priorities he wants the church to focus on, and which principles should guide our efforts. And yet, unfortunately, it seems as though many churches and church leaders have taken it upon themselves to change things. You know, it'd be kind of like walking into someone's house maybe and, and deciding that you want to rearrange the furniture. <laughs> like maybe you, you want the couch to be against that wall instead of this wall. Or you want a certain picture to, 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 to be moved to a different room. And so you just start changing things. Right? That would be crazy. That's a good way to get yourself uninvited to someone's house real quick. You don't do that in someone else's house. And yet, for whatever reason, there are many who seem to, to feel the freedom these days to do that in the church. And so I'd like to use the rest of our time together to briefly highlight four tendencies that undermine the lordship of Jesus over His church. The first is a tendency toward pragmatism. It seems as though many churches, in their quest for numerical growth, are driven more by a spirit of pragmatism than they are by biblical convictions. And when I say pragmatism, I'm just mainly talking about a willingness to do whatever works. Many churches and church leaders seem willing to do just about anything that's not overtly sinful in order to get people in the door and keep them coming. So the guiding question isn't so much, is it biblical, but rather, does it work? That's what they're interested in. And this often manifests itself in church services that are focused more on entertaining people than on nourishing them with substantive biblical truths. The people come and, you know, they have a great time and they're entertained. And it's all well and nice, but they leave without ever receiving anything substantive. Like they've been fed the cotton candy of entertainment rather than the meat of the Word. And so as a result, these kinds of churches are often a mile wide, but only half an inch deep. I've also seen a wide variety of gimmicks employed from time to time, Uh, efforts to attract people that rely on novelties and uh, maybe maybe shock value or these outrageous stunts instead of what the Bible says we should be attracting people with, which is the glories of Christ and the, the wonders of the gospel. That's the attraction here. And it's often said by the leaders of these kinds of churches that even though the message never changes, the methods must change. Yet in response, I would say that our methods should grow out of our message. That is, our methods should be guided by and a product of the biblical truths we believe, specifically about salvation and how people come to faith in the work of the Holy Spirit that's required and how the church is built up. Right? Our methods should be a product of those things. It's not enough just for the methods not to be overtly sinful. Because at the end of the day, guys, the main measure of the church's success isn't the number of people who attend, but rather how Christ-like people of the church are. That's what the Bible says is God's will, for our lives, according to Romans 8:29. It says he desires that we be conformed to the image of Christ. So if you take that and apply it to the church as a whole, that's the main measure of success. Not numbers, but Christ-likeness. Our goal here at Redeeming Grace. Let this be known from the very first Sunday in the building that our goal isn't necessarily to have a big church, but rather to have a healthy church and a faithful church. God will make this church as big as He wants it to be. Our job is to focus on being biblically healthy and faithful. <laughs> then a second tendency, in addition to a tendency toward pragmatism uh, that undermines the Lordship of Jesus over His church, is a tendency toward compromise. And I'm specifically thinking of theological Compromise. Uh, The reality is that, in case you haven't noticed, many of the truths taught in the Bible are just uh, not very popular in our modern and politically correct society. In fact, truth be told, I'm not sure they've ever been exceptionally popular in any society. And so, many churches have downplayed these offensive teachings or at times even denied them outright. It's kind of like we're all in middle school or something, and and they want to sit at the cool table, right? They they don't have to sit at the table that has all the people on the bottom of the social total pole, right? They want to be able to sit at the cool table and be liked and accepted and popular. And in order for that to happen, well, there are just certain biblical truths that have got to go. And like I said, even if a lot of these churches don't come right out and deny these offensive teachings, they very conspicuously omit just about any public mention of them. And I'm not talking about peripheral teachings either, right? I'm talking about core gospel truths, things like human sinfulness and God's judgment and the need for repentance. I mean, there are a lot of churches where you, you go in there and you don't know, hear teaching that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily saying anything wrong or, or blatantly unbiblical. But if you listen to enough of the teaching, you'll notice that there are certain very key truths and themes in the Bible that somehow just never seem to come up. And so the problem ends up being not so much what is said, but rather what isn't said that should be said. Again, core gospel truths like human sinfulness and God's judgment and the need for repentance in particular. Any church that omits these key themes is guilty of theological compromise and ultimately of undermining the lordship of Jesus over his church. Then a third tendency that undermines the lordship of Jesus is a tendency toward neglect. That is a neglect of clear commands from God. The fact is that following God's commands for the church isn't always an easy thing. Uh, For example, if uh, the, the, the Bible says that if a church member... So not just any person who walks in the door, but an actual church member, if a member is walking in any unrepentant sin, which means that there's a a pattern of sin in their life, they're not even making any effort whatsoever to repent of, then the rest of the church has the responsibility to bring that issue to the person's attention and to try to persuade them to follow Jesus in that area. And if the person continues pursuing that sinful desire even after countless attempts to, to bring them back and, and help them uh, see things clearly and, and turn toward Jesus again, then the rest of the church needs to take the step of removing them from membership. Um, the process for that is laid out very clearly in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And the goal of that process, of course, is love for the person and a desire to to save them from going down a path that will one day lead to their destruction. And yet, as is so often the case, what's loving isn't necessarily easy. And so many churches, maybe even most churches, just don't do it. They're guilty of neglecting that that very clear command in the Bible. And by the way, it's a command found not only in Matthew 18, but also in numerous other passages throughout the New Testament. And that's just one example, one easy thing to point to of a command that many churches neglect. There are plenty of other commands that are commonly neglected as well even commands that we could do a better job on, things like sharing the gospel in our day-to-day lives and commands to care for the poor and vulnerable and commands to focus not on our comfort but on God's kingdom. And I'm reminded of that rebuke that Jesus issues in Luke six forty-six. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I command. As one theologian has said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Um, Then moving on, a fourth and final tendency that undermines the lordship of Jesus over his church is a tendency toward idolatry. Now, of course, idolatry can take many different forms, many of which we've already covered this morning. But one of those forms is making an idol out of our preferences. When we add rules and requirements to those already found in the Bible, and treat our own preferences as if they were God-given mandates for the whole church, we are undermining the Lordship of Jesus. Now, for example, when a family who homeschools their kids implies that a family that doesn't homeschool is being negligent, well, that's a preference that's being elevated to the status of a God-given mandate. Other preferences might include uh, the presence or absence of various programs in the church, uh, or the style of music in the Sunday morning worship service, uh, maybe the personal decision of whether or not to consume alcohol in moderation, uh, the translation of the Bible that's used, and the nature or level of the church's participation in various social causes. Those are all preferences. Um, Also, one especially timely preference issue is our personal belief about whether someone should get the COVID vaccine or not. Whenever we treat our preferences as if they were God-given mandates that are binding for the whole church, that anyone who doesn't do what we want is in sin, we are engaging in a form of idolatry. And are ultimately undermining the lordship of Jesus over his church. So to sum all of this up, the church belongs to Jesus. And whenever we as Christians engage in these four tendencies, we're undermining that. And it's kind of like we're hijacking the church. It'd be similar to you driving down the road in your car and maybe stopping at a red light and someone forcing open your door and throwing you out of the car and taking off in your car. That's what we call hijacking. And that's essentially what we're doing whenever we engage in these four tendencies. We're hijacking the church, pushing Jesus out of the way so that we can grab hold of that steering wheel ourselves. So hopefully we as a church can avoid these tendencies. Uh, Hopefully by God's grace, we can humbly acknowledge and joyfully surrender to the Lordship of Jesus here at Redeeming Grace by letting our methodology grow out of our theology and avoiding pragmatism by standing firm in our biblical convictions and avoiding compromise by obeying, by obeying every word of Scripture and avoiding negligence and by holding our preferences with open hands and avoiding idolatry, friends, Jesus, He's Lord, and is altogether worthy and altogether desirable, as Paul states so well in Philippians two five through eleven. Have this mind among yourselves, which was is yours in Christ Jesus